0: Chapter 14, verse 16, is our New Testament springboard text into an Old Testament story. It says, verses 16 and 17, Jesus is speaking and he says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, Judges 16. And that's uh, the final chapter in the story of Samson. are uh, many chapters here, and I encourage you to read the chapters and read it in a modern translation as well as in your own Bible because it's rich with story, and uh, as we get under the skin of what was going on in Samson's life, there are a lot of lessons for us as we grow in our own spiritual lives. So Judges 16, verse 23, it's the end of Samson's story, and he has been captured by the Philistines. His eyes are being gouged out, and he's in prison, and now he's... ...become the cabaret in the celebration of the God of the Philistines. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together... ...to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said... Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, call for Samson, that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars which support the temple, so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O God, that I may with one blow... ...take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars... ...which supported the temple... ...and braced himself against them... ...one on his right hand and the other on his left. Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might... And the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he'd killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. Samson, well, I have a description of him today. Reading the story, reflecting on it, thinking about it, I'm going to call him Samson, the self-centered deliverer. He was very weak, known for his outward show of strength, but actually a very weak person, highly volatile, totally indifferent to everybody else apart from himself. Immature, vain, unstable, wild, uncontrollable, and boastful. Does it remind you of anybody that you know? I don't know. But he was also the deliverer of Israel. Now, we had great charismatic power and ability, but in reality, I see him as a tragic figure. Not just because his life was cut short... We read that he judged Israel for 20 years, which is around half the usual length of time, not just because his life was cut short, but because he missed the point of all of his life. You know, you can live successfully in an outward way. You can successfully fulfill a role in life as a husband, a father, captain of industry, business, whatever your role is. You could be successful in fulfilling your role in life, but still miss the real point of your life. And that's what Samson is a warning for us today. We're picking up on the theme, men of God in strange places. Last week, we began with Elijah, and I mentioned quite a number of Men of God in the Old Testament who found themselves in strange places, and in every example, the, the, the place that they're in somehow reveals something that God was wanting to deal in their life, deal with in their life. And uh, we're asking the question of Samson, "Where are you, Samson?" And this is a, a deep red dot question. Remember we were talking about the red dot. That is, if you are somewhere, maybe in a town center, which you're not familiar with, or a department store, or even in a shopping center, um, and you're pretty lost, you don't have much orientation, and uh, you go to a map, and it will show you with a red dot, you are here, and you try and work out where that is in relation to where you want to go. And the red dot question, where are you, is very significant because it's not talking just about your geographical position, it's talking about your spiritual position. What's going on inside you? What's going on deep in your heart at any particular moment? And uh, this question of reflection is very, very important. In fact, we should cultivate that ability to be always asking ourselves what's going on inside in me right now. And in that way, we can better discern what's motivating us so that what comes out of our mouth comes out of our lives. The way we act, the way we respond is more likely to glorify Jesus because we've discerned something that is fleshly and disturbing on the inside and dealt with it. So often the inner life, when we examine it, we discover something ugly going on. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But with the discerning of the Holy Spirit, we can examine what's going on inside and recognize this ugly thing. And usually what it is is this. Self-centeredness. Deeply entrenched self-centeredness that doesn't always come out in our behavior. Not so easily. Let me tell you a story about a man and a woman. Now, he comes home from work every evening... And he does his own thing. He's tired, he's exhausted, sits in front of the television, watches newspaper, looks at the newspaper. His wife is running around getting everything ready in the kitchen, getting the kids to bed, everything all done, all at the same time. And there he is, sitting like a vegetable, all closed up. And so, then he sits and eats and does the same thing after supper. Okay, next night, next night, it's different. He comes home. And says, hello darling, I've had a wonderful day, how have you got on today? Anything I can do to help you? Can I take care of the kids? Can I wash the kids, put them to bed? Shall I help you prepare the supper? And, and he spends the whole evening with her. Two different responses, same man, just the next evening. So you might say, something wonderful has happened to that man. He's had a dose of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> He's repented. Which man would you like most? Well, let me tell you the whole story before you answer that. (laughs) That first night, after supper, husband and wife had a discussion. Or more likely, really, it's best described as she had a word with him. (laughs) And she lost it big time. I'm telling you, I am sick. Of you coming, you selfish monster, coming at home, you don't take care of anything. you leave me to do everything. And I'm going to tell you, there's going to be no more sex until you change. <laughs> I wondered if I might put that a little more delicately, but I'm telling you as it is, and there's more than one way for a wife to let her know her husband that what's not on the table. So the next night, he comes home thinking, my goodness me, i better do something. (laughs) I I can't live without that intimate dimension. (laughs) So he hasn't changed, has he? He's still selfish, he's still self-centered, but you couldn't necessarily tell unless you knew the whole story. That's why I say it's so important for us to ask the deep red dot question. And always to be able to discern two things, of course, not just the fleshly stuff that's going on inside us, the self-centered fleshly um, uh, uh, motivations, but also to have the presence of the mind of the Holy Spirit to search beneath that rubble, beneath all that stinking flesh to find something else going on and that's the presence of God in every born-again believer's heart. The Holy Spirit it says, I know there's flesh stuff going on, but I, I want to be released in your life and begin to bring some changes from the inside out. Well, last week we looked at Elijah, and, uh, and today we're looking at Samson, and actually already we can see a pattern emerging. For both these men, the outer world had collapsed, and their inner world was being revealed. God did that, he allowed that, for one reason, that he might enter that inner world and work something deeper within them. Both men had a problem with the inner life, with their heart relationship with God. Elijah failed to keep his connection with God. But as we shall see, Samson failed to keep his covenant with God. Let me remind you in an encouraging way, God will only reveal the inner workings of the flesh so that he can release the Holy Spirit into our inner lives. Samson was a Nazarite from birth. If you're interested in finding more, more, out more about this, go to Numbers chapter 6 and read that at some time. The Nazarite vow was a very special vow. Most often it was a temporary vow in which a person... ...would make a vow to God and take on this Nazarite vocation... ...this Nazarite calling for a special season. And it was a season of devotion and dedication to God. Number 6, verse 8 gives us the key. It says, all the days of his separation... ...in other words, that the time of, the, of that vow... ...which they were specially separated to God... ...all the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord... And this was marked by certain external things, behavioral issues, even what you were allowed to eat on a Nazarite vow. For example, food-wise, you were not allowed to eat anything that came from the vine. No grapes, no raisins, no grape juice, and nothing that would come beyond that by way of fermentation. No wine, no strong drink. You were never, ever allowed in your entire life to touch a dead body. And also, as an outward sign of this vow, you were not allowed to cut your hair. No razor to touch your head. Now, Samson was given this calling, but not just for a season, from birth. God gave it to him and revealed himself through the angel to Samson's mother, saying, listen, he will be a Nazarite from birth. In other words, the whole of his life was to be a holy calling for God, set apart to him for a special way, in a special way, the whole of his life. Now, obviously, this was because God had a special plan for Samson. Samson, I want to make you a special vessel. I'm going to use you to deliver my people Israel. But it wasn't just about how God would use him. It was about an internal call upon his life. There was a special grace that came with this. The grace to draw closer to God from the inside and and have a deep and a rich and a personally rewarding relationship with God. It was a kind of covenant. Nowhere is the Nazarite vow actually called a covenant in the Bible, but it was a kind of covenant. Covenant, An agreement in which you entered into a special relationship with God. And it reminds me of the New Testament principle in which we are called always as born-again believers to set apart the Lord God in our heart. 1 Peter 3.15 actually says this. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That was the Nazarite call... And it's fulfilled in every believer's life in the New Testament. We are set apart from birth, from our rebirth, into a special relationship exclusively dedicated to the Lord. Very significant. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's what God was after. Not just a vessel, but a friend, an intimate friend. Now you need to know the spiritual conditions of the day. And remarkably, they're very, very similar to the spiritual conditions in Britain today. In a word, I would describe it as superficial. Superficial. There were times of insincere, shallow spirituality. And we read about this. We know that during the time of the judges, there was no king. No king appointed No kingdom, no monarchy, because God was their king. And at the very end of the book of Judges, we have God's editorial comment, not just on the book, but the whole of Israel's history at this particular time. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doesn't that sound like today? No surrender to the kingship of God. No yieldness to his rule and everybody doing what was right in his own eyes. Imagine how disastrous it would have been if everybody started doing what was wrong in their own eyes. So even when we do what's right in our own eyes, it's still not enough. There was, you see, no focus on a man as the head of the nation to which the people could look for security or for provision. And because there was no established monarchy, no established trappings of monarchy, then there was no, none of these external forms and provisions which are usually given in nation states where, where behavior is shaped. And the whole nation is governed in the same way. Now, this was deliberate on God's part, because, you see, he gave the people a time when they could think of God himself as being their king. No king between the Lord and themselves. That means they could relate to God as as being under his personal rule, God being in direct rule over their lives. And also, it was a time when they wouldn't need to look to a man to save them, or a man to provide for them, or a man to meet their needs, though they could look alone to God to be everything that God wants to be. What a wonderful, gracious opportunity. What a wonderful provision. It's exactly the position we're in because there's no king between Jesus and us. And the only person who can interfere with that rulership, the government of God, is our own self-centeredness. However, the nation missed it. They blew it big time, again and again and again. And they entered into this repeated cycle. It begins when the people start forgetting God, turning away from God, and then the nation comes into difficulty. God himself raises up enemies to come and to, to provoke the nation and say, you've broken my covenant. And then things would get tough, the economy would go down, National security would be at risk. And so the people under this pressure... ...would begin to turn to God again and cry out to God... ...God help us, God raise us, God God deliver us, God save us. And God always answered that prayer. He always raised up a deliverer to rescue them. And the pattern of this was the charismatic judges. Before the kingdom, there were these charismatic judges. God would put his spirit on a man or a woman... And that person would rise up with spiritual giftedness and would be the right man, the right woman for that nation and would deal with the enemies. God's greater plan was not that they should have their national security problem solved, but that their hearts should return to God himself. Uh, The trouble is, as soon as they were living in peace and security and prosperity got back in, the cycle started over again. This shows us that there was never any real lasting change. No real deep-rooted repentance. No sincere heart relationship with God. They just looked to God in times of emergency. Just when you dial the AA or the RAC and are very thankful that you'd paid your subscription. Now the tragedy is, is that this spirit of the age seems to have infected Samson. In fact, he was riddled with this through and through. He was superficial. He had an external, selfish relationship with God. And it's tragedy today also how much our contemporary culture invades and infects the church. Instead of us being salt and light, it's easy for the world to affect us, how we think, how we behave. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people do this because they want to be culturally relevant. And I, I believe in cultural relevance, but also we should be culturally resistant, not just relevant, but resistant. And unfortunately, people actually fall into one camp or the other. They're the people who are so culturally relevant that their lives don't aren't any different from the people around them. But others who are so culturally resistant that they won't even read a newspaper and they stick in their holy huddles and that's not what we're due to do. We we are a counter-cultural force which means, yes, we must engage with our culture and we must engage with the issues of the day but also deal with those issues in a way that influences our society and enables us to resist the prevalent cultural attitudes and behaviors around us which dishonor God and our society. And only a deep spirituality can do that. If I'd say, what is the current move of God? What is the agenda of the Holy Spirit today? And that is deepening the spiritual roots of every believer so that new fresh fruit, fruit that remains, can come of that. That's why we have this Giants giants of Influence ministry. Through the cells, we are encouraging people to penetrate every area of their life, their homes, their families, as well as places of education and work and their different areas of society, so that we can take on the challenge and be men and women who are different and be part of the answer... Not part of the problem. So I would say Samson's life is pretty infected by all this stuff. But you know, God is more gracious than me. Because when God records Samson's life, we find his name listed in heaven's roll of honor. One of the mighty men and women of God one of the mighty saints of the Old Testament, mighty in faith. And and all these are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer to Hebrews chapter 11 is, is going on about all these great men and women, and then he has to summarize a little bit. So in verse 32, Hebrews 11, it says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of... I just love it. He's a real preacher... He's saying, if I had more time, I could tell you of this and that and the other, but I don't have any time. And the people breathe a sigh of relief, saying at least he knows he hasn't got as much time as he'd like. (laughs) For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms. It's amazing. God ...wants us to achieve great and mighty things in our world by faith. By f- who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness... ...obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions... ...quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. And here it comes. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle... Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Samson's right there in the middle of that. If ever there was a weak man, it was him. If ever God used him to become strong, it was him. Become valiant in battle. He delivered Israel. He judged Israel during that time. But when it talks about turning to flight the armies of the aliens, I must tell you, my mind was distracted with this old word, aliens, I began to think of the Battle of the Aliens, I began to think of Steven Spielberg and science fiction, and then my mind went to comic book superheroes, and I brought it back to Samson by thinking of the Incredible Hulk. (laughs) Samson was not the Incredible Hulk of the Old Testament. There's some similarities in a way. It's not science fiction, it's spiritual fact. Because under the anointing of God, Samson was changed somehow and enabled by God to do acts of supernatural, not superhuman, but supernatural acts of physical strength and military power prowess in order to rescue God's people from the Philistines. Samson's story, in part, was about his physical weakness being turned into strength. And by that acting, to save Israel, but that's only part of the story. The other part of the story, which God wanted to work in his life, was to see his inner weakness, not just his physical weakness, but his inner weakness being conquered by the Spirit of God. That, too, was part of this Nazarite covenant. When we dig a little more deeply into Samson's life story, we see that, basically speaking, he was superficial, self-centered, he had a shallow or even at times non-existent spirituality, do you realize we never see him seeking God or even praying until the end, where where the passage we read, but throughout his life we have no record of him praying, never see him drawing near to God, never hungering and thirsting after, after God and really never truly caring for others, not even Israel. Every time he acted to deliver Israel, he was acting in his own self-motivation. As you read through the story, you can see. When we look, about, look into his family background, I'm pretty sure he had parental issues. Probably he was uh, overmothered and under-fathered, if you know what I mean. I mean, his father was not the sharpest tool in the box. That's very, very clear. His mother was the real brains and the real strength of the family. The angel came to the mother, not the father. The angel didn't waste his time speaking to Manoah. (laughs) Uh, When the mother came home and said to the father... Oh, an angel appeared. He said, I don't believe it. Show it for myself. So he has to go through it again. The angel has to go through everything again. So okay, all right, you didn't get it the first time. Let's go through it again. So he has to go through it again. And the the father is pretty overwhelmed. Who are you? What's your name? Irrelevant, missing the point altogether. So he said, can I offer you something to eat? He said, I'm not going to eat. But if you offer something to me, let it be a sacrifice. So Manoah prepares a sacrifice, and the fire comes, and the angel ascends on the flame. And then suddenly it dawns on him, oh my God, I'm in big trouble. Judges 13, 22 to 23, here it is, right from that place. Judges 13, 22 to 23. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, don't be so stupid. Well, actually, <laughs> you've got to read between the lines, but it's there. If the Lord had desired to kill us, would, he would not have accepted this burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time, you dumb man. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm wondering, was this the backstory to Samson's relational weaknesses? Was this the background of his undisciplined lifestyle? His hollow understanding of what he thought it takes to be a man. Very, very important parents that we, uh, God helps us to, to raise up godly young men and women. Of course, ultimately it's their decision, but we need that environment in which people's lives are shaped in a godly way, in a godly fashion. Well, anyway... Whatever happened at home, it didn't work, because this young man grew up with lots of weaknesses. The one that we focus most often on is that he had an eye for the ladies. Now, I don't know whether the the ladies had an eye for him. I'm trying to work out about this, but every woman that I spoke to after the nine o'clock service said, oh, yes, he was very handsome. How do you know? I just know. (laughs) Oh, he was very handsome, very muscular. Ah, yeah. So I said, steady on. Get back to thinking on spiritual things. So, but he definitely had an—he had an eye for the ladies, and in Judges 14 it says a Philistine lady caught his eye. Well, we know, or what, what's behind that? And uh, when you start reading from here onwards, you think you're reading the script of the next TV series because it really is very, very racy. Now. Samson came back to his mother and father and said, I want to marry this woman. And they said, But she's a Philistine. You should marry an Israelite girl. He said, No, I'm my mind set on it. And so he is making a, a mistake, a big mistake, going against his mother and father, going against the law of Israel. However, something else was happening. And I think this is astonishing because it tells us the nature of grace. Judges 14, verse 4. It says, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. I think that's mind-blowing. Samson is breaking every rule in the book, but somehow God does not abandon him, and out of his grace... God is still at work. I want to tell you whoever you are, wherever you are, no, mat- no matter how much you've messed up, blessed, destroyed, this, that, or the other, double deluxe, messed up, God is still at work. Yeah. God has not abandoned you. It doesn't excuse your behavior any more than this behavior was excusable because God was going to work somehow in it to fulfill his purpose. ...but it does show us the true nature of grace... ...that it's all about what God can do... ...it is not about our actions or what we deserve. Also, this can be a kind of refrain... ...that can be repeated in every chapter... ...of the story of Samson's life. He did something stupid... ...but God was at work anyway. As I say, that's the nature of grace... But it's not the purpose of grace. God's grace is not just an external provision to make up for our mistakes and to work despite us. God's grace is also an internal capacity by which he draws us nearer to him. The purpose of grace is, is, is that it works on the inside of us to change us from within. And even though Samson kept on breaking every rule, God still stuck with him and used him. He took a Philistine for a wife. A long story, but he touched a dead lion. He wasn't supposed to touch any dead body. And he gave away his secrets to any woman he was involved with, especially those who nagged him. And eventually, with Delilah, he gave away state secrets. This means he cracked easily because he was superficial and easily annoyed, an immature person. This tells me he was a weak man in his relationships, driven, as we obviously know, by his frequent sexual attractions, never developing any character of self control. He hung out with the wrong company, he lived a playboy lifestyle. The wedding party that he had with the Philistines was according to the custom of the elite young men. That's the New Living Translation of that particular passage. He was one of the elite. He was trying to live like a playboy. That's why he was hanging out in their company. So he had this extended party for his marriage. And of course things went wrong, showing how easily angered he was and how Self-centered was his motivation, how uncontrollable he was when he was angry, because he went out and killed 30 Philistines in order to pay a debt that he lost because his wife betrayed him. So he deserted her. And uh, she then began to live with the best man at the wedding. I told you it's a television series. (laughs) He loses it because she betrays him He deserts her, and so she marries the best man at the wedding. Or now she's living with him. But it doesn't stop Samson, because after a little while, he thought, well, I better go back. And so even though he deserted her, he came knocking on the door that night wanting more sex. Jack the lad, a real man's man, but not manly at all. He had no respect for women, And that's one of the best characteristics of a real man of God. A real man. No respect for women. He was certainly not cool and not masculine. Just because he could kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey didn't make him a man. In fact, he was ugly. Not godly. Thank you, ladies. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Strong on the outside, but empty on the inside. He was a slave to his own passions and desires. Big man on the outside, but very small on the inside. All his mighty acts of of power and strength, his feats of strength, were all done in anger, all triggered by his own personal selfish motivations because he was personally hacked off. I'll get him. And then... When he had a victory, then he started to boast about it. uh, His ego was as big as anything. And he was boasting about it as if it was all down to him. But God was still with him. And God was still using him. The problem was that Samson didn't allow the grace of God that was equipping him to do all these powerful things in the public place. He didn't allow that same grace to penetrate his heart to bring about a real change, real transformation from within. That's why he missed the whole point of his life. So as we fast forward to the end of the story, which we read earlier, we find that it ends well. And I'm really encouraged by this. In fact, Samson in his death was better than Samson in his life. He finally began to get the message, although it was very, very late in the day. Nevertheless, at least, he'd begun to get the message and has left that record for all of us today to know what the real point of living is. It doesn't take a very intelligent person to realize that the destructive cycle that Samson was in, weakness with women, frequenting houses of prostitution being easily manipulated, no strength of character, that one day, all that had to break down. It had to end badly. The whole Delilah story, as you know, when she nagged him, she was a spy from the Philistines, and he gave in, told her his secret, which was the length of his hair, we'll come back to that, Because that wasn't the the secret, it was the sign of the secret. And so he's captured. He thought he could just go out and do what he did before. There comes a time when you have so ceased to rely on God that what you thought you could do easily, six times before breakfast, you can't do it all. Only then do you realize how dependent on God you were. And every success and victory in your life was 100% The grace of God. 100% de la grâce de Dieu. I speak to my French assistant. 100% the grace of God. How easy it is to think that our success is down to us. If God blesses us, it's because we deserve it or because we're better than other people. And how that can lead us into this outward performance orientation. And how ironic the whole of his life was a performance. And so he ended up performing for the enemy. That's why we need to cultivate the inner life. Now he's a prisoner, eyeless in Gaza, having lost his vision, nothing but cabaret entertainment in the temple of the Philistines in praise of the God of the Philistines, Dagon. And you can hear them mocking. Oh, Oh, where are you now? You say you serve the one true God. Our God's bigger than your God. And when it comes to the way we play with one another, for example, saying, how do you feel now as a supporter of Manchester United? That will teach you to chase them red devils. Now, I know that people think football is far more important than life itself, but it's not just about these things. The whole of our society is trying to bait us and trying to stir us up so that, so that we look stupid. And, and you say you serve the true and the living God and look at you, your life's a mess, it's rubbish, you're weak, you're terrible, you're stupid. But the truth is they're longing to believe that what we say is true. And therefore we have a problem. We have to show them that it's true. We have to show them that our God is real, that our God is mighty, our God is powerful, that our God is the great and almighty God of the universe. But how do we do that when we're nothing more than Samson on the inside? Well, we live real. Of course, you know, every success is down to God. Every failure is down to our flesh. When we live open lives and let people really into our lives and say, listen, it's not about me. It's not about me. If, if, the, if God were to lift his hand from me, I would be as bad as you are, if that sounds insulting, or worse than you are. No way. This is not me, it's him. We preach Christ, not ourselves. And as we learn to live in such a way, God's power being made perfect in weakness. Well, something happened to Samson while he was in prison. I've never been into prison. I've been to prison, but not actually as a tenant. (laughs) But I know people who have, and I know people who have found God in prison. I know people who have turned their lives around in prison because they've had time to think and reflect. And maybe Samson was doing that. In fact, I'm sure he was. How did I get into this mess? He he asked himself a few red dot questions. Where am I? How did I get here? And he began to see that he had neglected at least 50% of his covenant with God. That the going out there doing mighty exploits in charismatic power was one thing. But letting God penetrate his life and change him from the inside out was another thing. And something else happened. His hair grew back. Now, his strength wasn't in his hair. If it was, I'd like to know what shampoo he used and use the same. (laughs) The length of hair was just a kind of outward sign of, of what was happening in your heart. Your whole life was given out to God. There were no restrictions. You were giving everything to God. And I believe this time what was happening on the outside matched what was being renewed on the inside. And now he got the point he remembered his covenant with God. He prayed. The first time we see him recorded as as praying. He asked God to strengthen him. Never do we see him praying like that. He just went out assuming and presuming that God would anoint him and give him power. This time, he asks God... He seeks God. He prays to God. He says, God, just one more chance, Lord. I know. He said, God, just give me one more chance to take vengeance on the Philistines. Remember, vengeance in the Old Testament is very much the judgment of God. There was a godly vengeance. Now, in the New Testament, we remember vengeance is mine. Says the Lord, I will repay. We don't take vengeance. But in that covenant, God executed his justice through these agents. That's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. But he could have prayed, another prayer could have said, God, i got a plan. You strengthen me once more and I'll get out of here and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. He saw an opportunity to bring glory to God at the end of his life, he said, I'll never have this opportunity. I'm like a spy sent right into the middle of the camp and they've underestimated me, but right now I could do more damage to the enemy in this place than ever I've ever done before. And indeed he did. He saw more people judged and killed in, the, in his death than all of his life, and it was for the glory of God. And it was not about himself he had forgotten his own life. In fact, he sacrificed it. Hallelujah. Amen. He goes out well. And I want to thank God we too have a covenant. A covenant that we must never forget. We read a little bit about it in John 14. Verse 16, Jesus says, I'll pray to the Father, give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. He says, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is on the the cusp of the new covenant, the inauguration of the new covenant in which people would have a totally different relationship with God. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, you know him because he's with you. How was the Spirit with them? The Spirit was on Jesus, and Jesus was filled with the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit as Messiah without measure. And so they knew the Spirit because the Spirit was operating in Jesus' life. And then Jesus gives them an amazing promise. This same Holy Spirit whom you know and who is with you as you are with me, this Spirit will enter your life and change you from within. You will be born again and you'll receive a Nazarite vow for your life. You will be the whole of your life totally dedicated to me from the inside out. So the Holy Spirit is calling us into this new covenant relationship. He's not just with us or upon us. He is in us. And he leads us in this lifetime of drawing near to God, developing relationship with him, allowing him to access our inner weaknesses so those weak parts become strong, digging deep beneath the sinful fleshly stuff that's going on in our life to see the Holy Spirit at work within bringing us closer and closer to God. And living like this as we exhibit that to our our world, to our society, we will not just be thermometers taking the spiritual temperature and reflecting the spiritual temperature. We'll be thermostats changing the spiritual temperature and the spiritual environment. We will do, perhaps, what Samson was supposed to do but never did, not just to lead people into a relationship with God so that they may be secure in life, but to lead people into a relationship with God that is based on moral and spiritual reformation, deep spiritual reformation. Amen and amen. Amen. And so we need to know what is our real calling, our real purpose, which is to know God and to love him. And become a revelation of him to others. How? By the way we treat them. By the way we relate to them. By the way that we love them. By the way that we serve them. And they know, even you don't have to say it, they know that it's coming from Jesus. Living in you. Because every outward act, every achievement in life, as hopefully we desire to fulfill successfully the role in life that God has given us, everything outward is flowing from that place of depth, that inner knowledge, that inner covenant in which God is in us, changing us from within. We get to know the Holy Spirit not just as an external charismatic influence upon our lives, but as a person with whom we have an intimate relationship because he dwells within our hearts. He reveals Christ to us and begins to shape us from within, and transform us to become more like Jesus. We know that we are set apart for God exclusively, not just in our Sunday celebrations or our cell gatherings, but everything that we do is flowing from the grace of God who will do two things, who will enable us and equip us to do what we should be doing in a way that honors him, but secondly, that we should grow inwardly in that spirit of grace and knowledge of God. So the Holy Spirit wants to remind us today, don't forget the covenant. Don't forget that covenant. God putting his spirit on the inside of us, giving us a longing and a desire to know him. That's the purpose to which we are called. Every head bowed and every eye closed, right now in his presence, please, Nobody moving around in this building. Jesus is Lord. We recall that word from 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's our Nazarite covenant, our Nazarite call. Men and women of God, we're nothing without Him. However, we look on the outside without His Spirit at work as we yield to Him according to His real agenda for our lives, to love Him and to serve Him. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Let His anointing rest on your life today. Not just externally, but inwardly. And whenever God uses you in some manifestation of power or success, or be it him just giving you an extra nudge that you get those few percentage points that you need in that examination to qualify for the next step in your life. Thank God for that. It's the grace of God. If you're congratulated for being a good father, a good mother, a good employee, a good employer, thank God if people give you the honors of this world because you're successful, thank God. Embrace it. Take it. It's a blessing, but don't put your confidence in it. Say, God, let that draw me closer to you because my real purpose is not to be a husband or to be a father. My real purpose is to be in relation to you. And out of that will flow all the qualities necessary to fulfill all that God has called us to fulfill. Bless us today, Father. Strengthen us in the inner person. And let your Holy Spirit take full control. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Give Jesus a big praise. Amen and amen.